Hi, I'm Elizabeth Dupree, and I'm here today on the CONP podcast with Anna Van Gulik and John Borgi to learn more about open data in neuroscience today. Thank you both for joining me on this call. John, can I ask you to introduce yourself first? Sure. So I'm John Borgi. I'm the manager of research and instruction at the Lane Medical Library at Stanford. Uh, so I work right next to the hospital here at Stanford. And what I do, I'm still figuring that out. Actually, I've been on this this particular job for about six weeks now. Uh, but it's managing the team that is kind of the public face of the library and does kind of the research related services. So we do a lot of literature review help data services, which is what I was initially hired to do here, and kind of outreach to various departments and groups on the medical side of Stanford. Thanks so much, John. Anna, could you also introduce yourself and tell us what you work on now? Sure, yeah. Uh, So I'm Anna Van Gulek. Uh, I'm at Carnegie Mellon University in the University Libraries. And I transitioned from doing uh, primary cognitive neuroscience research to working in libraries about five years ago. I used to study visual perception. And first I came in as a postdoc doing data curation, and I was focused on data curation and data management issues um, across the whole university. Um, And since then, in the past three years or so, I've transitioned to being a subject librarian or a liaison librarian. So I work uh, mostly with the fields of psychology and neuroscience here. We have a pretty interdisciplinary neuroscience group that includes a lot of computational people, robotics, biomedical engineering, uh, and also a lot of collaborations with the University of Pittsburgh in that domain. So I primarily work with those researchers and students. I, you know, do basic librarian tasks, like occasionally ordering books and checking journal subscriptions, um, but that's really a very small component of my job, uh, not something I spend a lot of time doing. I help people find literature and resources, but my focus has been uh, mostly on data because this is an area of growing interest uh, in both the library world as well as in the research communities as people get more interested in open science and funder and publisher mandates. So. I work with people on data sharing using our institutional repository um, quite a bit, which is a Figshare repository. Um, And in the last year, uh, we also started what we are calling an open science program uh, here in the university libraries. And so I'm the program director for that. And I work with two other STEM librarians that also come from PhD backgrounds. And so we have a focus on digital tools, trainings, uh, and events that promote and support open science practices. No, that's amazing. So, so there's a lot in both of your introductions that I, I really want to get into. Maybe the first thing is, Anna, you specifically talked about your transition, So, but you both share this kind of background that I think many OHBM community members may not even know is an option, which is that you both have backgrounds, PhDs in neuroscience, and then switched um, into library sciences. Could you talk a little bit about what motivated that transition and what you hope to gain originally, maybe, from that transition and and what you feel like you have gained since? Sure, I guess I'll go first. I kind of figured out midway through, maybe a little bit like towards the second half of my PhD, that I didn't really want to be on the kind of traditional path to do a postdoc and then a, a faculty position. And I was looking around for things that I wanted to do. And I was looking actually not in libraries at first. I was looking at science communication kind of stuff. You know, looking around for jobs. I didn't really want to do science journalism. I didn't really want to, I didn't really know. 
But I saw this job that was in a library and it was about science informationist was the, the name of the position. And it was about taking um, basically the services of the library and the needs of the uh, research community and translating back and forth, like who needs what and how do we provide those things and, and working closely with researchers to help with their research while being within the library. And that seemed kind of perfect because I didn't have to do research and write papers, but I could still be involved. Um, and so I did that for a couple of years and at Rockefeller University, and it was a pretty good first library job. And I had heard about this postdoctoral fellowship program, and I will probably talk about this as well, called um, Clear Postdoctoral Fellowship Program. And the whole point of that program is to take PhDs and kind of integrate them into the library. And I was already in a PhD working in a library, but what attracted me to that program was data. Um, it was like very explicitly uh, the focus of, of part of the program was data librarianship. And this was 2015 or so. So, um, you know, reproducibility as we talk about it now was coming to the forefront, a lot of open science -y stuff. And I wanted to get involved in that because, you know, that, that was a conversation that was kind of happening when I was in graduate school and it was sort of interesting, but was not as big of a sort of thing, I don't think. Um, or at least I wasn't paying attention to it. And so I got accepted to the program and that brought me out to the West Coast. And it was a two-year fellowship and I was at California Digital Library and it was like really great at exposing me to the wider world of like what data in a library looks like, um, which is exactly what I wanted. So everything from like how people learn about data and data management to like the IT infrastructure <laughs> around all of this, you know, Anna mentioned institutional repositories. Um, that's just like one example. There's a huge, like um, we could talk about maybe like set of systems and individual practices. And this funny offshoot or a, a funny consequence of all of this is when I left academia or left sort of the bench, I guess, or, or working in a lab as a researcher, I never thought I would write papers. I never thought I would do a postdoc. And I never thought like I would ever end up in a place like Stanford. And now I've written papers. I did a two year postdoc and now here I am at Stanford. Um, so it's, it's kind of like this crazy, uh, consequence of all this stuff. But yeah, it, it started as a science communication thing and I've just found myself more and more kind of in the library world. That's really awesome. Anna, can you tell us a little bit about for you the same same question? Yeah, sure. So as John alluded to, we, we did the same fellowship, the same postdoctoral program, completed it one year prior to John. So we weren't in the same cohort, but that is how we were actually introduced to each other was through that program, having come from similar research backgrounds. But yeah, in 2014, I was finishing my uh, PhD at at Vanderbilt and uh, knew that I didn't want to go into a primary research postdoc, that the tenure track path was probably not what I wanted to pursue. And I uh, actually had the need to move to Pittsburgh for personal reasons. And a former mentor of mine uh, was here at Carnegie Mellon and said that the library had reached out, that they had this postdoc to fill. They were really looking for recent PhDs uh, who would like to work in the library. And I said, what, the library? I, I don't go to the library. I don't use the library. This is not for me. Um, but he convinced me to, to take a call with them, actually, the day after my dissertation defense. And they said, well, do you do, you do data management? And like, what tools do you use? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. That's not a word I use. I guess I have data and I, I don't know, I keep notes, I use Evernote. And <laughs> um, they were like, that's great, that's amazing. Yes, like please come and do this. So 
I went in really not knowing very much at all about libraries or um, this postdoc or anything. And they kind of give you a, a crash course training in libraries because they're taking people from all these different fields. And, and so that's a, a little bit of a transition there. Um, but it's turned out that libraries are this really interesting place because they're evolving so rapidly. And, you know, I guess the sense is that the library is always in this state of evolution, but probably even more so now than ever because of open access and digital information and really the shift that's happening there. Um, and so librarians are sort of being redeployed and we're rethinking about what to focus on and you know, what are the needs of research communities from the library and what can we provide. And so that's actually been a really cool thing to be involved in. We have a very forward thinking um, Dean of Libraries here and it's been great to have the library included in the, in the university's strategic plan and to be able to get digital tools like a Figshare repository. We're trying to get an electronic lab notebook license. We've gotten other smaller, um, you know, licenses to other tools. I've started doing carpentries trainings um, and we've hired lots of people with PhDs because it works really well to have that research background and so that you can relate to people doing the research to graduate students and faculty members and understand what you know writing grants is like and all of those things and then figure out how from the library and institutional standpoint to better support that like what are actual pain points and needs and and how can we be part of that community so i really like actually it turns out i really like it <laughs> um after um, a few years of being of wondering how i landed in a library and it's great to be part of the research community both at Carnegie Mellon, as well as being part of still the neuroscience research community. So, you know, psychology and neuroscience are probably, if not at the very forefront with particle physics and genetics, but at the leading edge of open science, um, and certainly very motivated, and also communities that are driven to, you know, adopt their own tools and methods and, and do all that sort of development work grassroots. Um, so having that still overlapping foot in two worlds has been great and learning to translate library lingo to researcher lingo, I would say that's actually probably the biggest part of my job is just going back and forth with that translation. No, that's awesome. I think that's really cool. And I think this point that you make about how rapidly libraries are evolving and, and how that's tied into the state of the field is something that I really only realized in the past couple of years. I think it's something a lot of OHBM still hasn't quite keyed into yet. And I think that's a really, really cool piece to make members aware of like what's going on there. Um, and actually kind of circling back, so speaking of things evolving, so you said when you first uh, right after you defended your dissertation, you were like, well, I have data, and I guess I work with it, and, you know, what does that mean? So I know you both had actually done a recent paper kind of asking the field to really think about, you know, what is data management? Um, what is the sharing that you're doing? What does that look like in our own neuroscience community? Could you talk maybe for uh, re our listeners who haven't had a chance to read the paper yet, could you talk a little bit about um, maybe the results? And in particular, was there anything that really surprised you or that made you optimistic about the field or, or something you really hope we can change or have started to change? We should probably talk about why we did the study first. Yeah, so I, I will say that this is a, a study that was born because of Twitter, pretty much. Not pretty much, exactly, like 100%. So the, the fellowship program that we both did, there's like this week-long crash course into libraries at the beginning of it. 
And I was like admittedly not particularly paying attention for part of it. So I was just like tweeting things on my phone. <laughs> and I tweeted out, like we were hearing about data management and how libraries consider it. And I literally tweeted out like, oh, something to the effect of like, is anyone thinking about this in neuroscience world or neuroimaging? Because like the data there is so unstatic, right? Like, you know, there's raw data, process data, analyzed data. What are we even talking about? What do we, when we say data, it's not always clear. Um, is anyone doing this? And someone from the program connected me and Anna together as the two like cognitive neuroscience people that have gone through the program in its history. And that's, that's kind of literally where the, the collaboration began was me being born <laughs> in, a, in this, in this bootcamp. Um, so yeah, so, so we, it took us a little while to get off the ground, but we, we eventually decided that we were going to survey the field and, and ask people what they are doing. Uh, there's a lot of library kind of work that happens that is survey based, but also a lot of librarians who just talk to each other about like, what are the practices in this field? And we decided like, well, we're human subjects researchers, let's do some human subjects research and, and ask people what they're doing and, and try to figure out how to ask about these concepts that are very jargon heavy in a way that researchers will actually understand and appreciate. Yeah, I think the other two things about the design are that we wanted to really make it very discipline specific Yeah. Um, because neuroimaging has such a you know, long analysis pipeline and so many decision points along the way and so many different software tools. Um, so using a generic survey question <laughs> about data management really get to the issues that exist there. Um, so we wanted to leverage our kind of background there and also consult with a, a number of people in the field to get their feedback on the survey to make sure that we were capturing things that were um, relevant and appropriate and really specific to the, to the methodology and the subdiscipline of you know, human neuroimaging. Um, and then the other thing to throw in is that there's a lot of interest in surveying people's adoption of open science practices, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's just data sharing or publishing preprints and what the impact of those things are. And it's really great to have metrics on that and we do want to track the adoption. But I think John and I were both interested in capturing the longer research process, the more complete research process, and all of the practices that lead up to that, because that's all really critical to being able to share your work and to make it reproducible in the end um, is, is to kind of build it in, into both the planning stages, data collection, data analysis. And so we were curious about what data practices looked like at all of those stages. And I, I will also say, like, there's part of this whole effort that was to demonstrate that the library has a role here. Um, it's like survey as advertisement almost. Like, look, <laughs> like, we're two cognitive neuroscience people in a library doing a survey. And so let's talk about both of those perspectives in our introduction and discussion um, and, and kind of show, like, we don't need to reinvent the wheel on both sides of this, both the research community and the library are working on things. Let's kind of collaborate and work together. So there was a part of that motivating thing. The other thing I'll say is it was a really interesting exercise in doing research for me as a person, like not in a place where there was an IRB. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think there are lots of libraries where librarians do lots of research, but it is still, I think a little bit unusual 
to do this kind of research. So we, we had a lot of logistical and interesting things to jump through. Gotten over a little bit now. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, and you got over just to get the survey out, right? So, yeah. yeah. So took a little while, but we appreciate <laughs> it to have it out there. Um, could you could you guys tell us a little bit about what you found and kind of what, what kind of some of the takeaways maybe that either you expected or you didn't expect? Yeah, I don't know if we really knew what to expect. Like, because neuroimaging didn't have really a set of best practices or standards. I mean, there were standards and there was some best practices, but in terms of like backing up data, naming files, organizing files, you know, before there was bids and some of this infrastructure that exists now, I'm not sure how much existed. And I'm saying that because when I was learning how to do MRI data analysis, I was not really taught about data management. And the way we organized files was basically due to the way they came off the scanner and the way SPM outputted things. So we knew that there was probably going to be a continuum between like completely ad hoc, everyone in the lab is doing completely different things to everyone is using bids, right? And my like, I don't know, inherent cynicism about some of this stuff led me to kind of expect that it would be much more the former than the latter. Yeah, and I actually came away pretty, not impressed maybe isn't the word, but pretty happy with like how much our respondents indicated that they were thinking about these data-related issues. You know, people were backing up their files. If they weren't using bids, they were at least saying that they were uh, documenting some of their decision-making. So in general, I I thought like, oh, wow, the field is actually kind of better than I would have expected. (laughs) Um, And I don't think that's a reflection of the field so much as a reflection on my, my own personality about this kind of stuff. But we surveyed pretty thoroughly. So there's probably also part of it that like, if you're gonna sit down for 20 minutes and talk about your data practices, probably you thought about those practices. Yeah, admittedly, we probably have some sampling bias, um, <laughs> certainly. Um, you know, we recruited a lot of subjects through, through Twitter, and, and so there's a, a bent towards people who are probably already paying attention to these issues and, and issues of open science there. I think, yeah, it was people's, as we called it in the paper, maturity of data management practices from, you know, more ad hoc, everyone does their own thing, to more regimented, standardized, was actually um, pretty well organized at the data collection and data analysis phases. And I think that, again, owes to the nature of neuroimaging work. If you are not regimented in your file naming and your documentation, uh, you will be in in trouble pretty fast. So we conducted this, this spring a similar survey that was adapted for the psychology community. And so that's going to be coming out later this year. We're in the process of writing up those results. And so it'll be interesting to compare um, fields that differ across methodology in that sense, you know, that are similar fields, but um, have different dependencies um, because of their uh, methods practices. We did find that the neuroimaging community was, you know, not, had not fully adopted all of these open science practices, such as trying to replicate a data set or making a data set public or requesting a data set or posting preprints was preprints was actually the most common, I think, um, of the practices. So we're getting there um, with, with open access for publications, um, but perhaps sharing of software and code and uh, data sets um, is something that people are going to be coming to. We asked them if they wanted you know, to do this in the future. And there was a lot of interest, but not as much adoption yet. So 
that kind of then informs the question of how can libraries or how can the OHBM community come together and support people going into those new practices. Um, and that's kind of what we hoped to find out was what were the needs. Those are really important questions. So in discussing this survey, you've brought up other aspects of open science that are related to data management. Um, two that I've heard a lot of conversation around within the OHBM and CONP communities are licensing and the ethics of data sharing. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you think about these issues and what you think should be done to help researchers understand them a little bit more. Yeah, so at OHBM in Rome, I gave a little talk about these kinds of issues in the open science room um, because as the librarian for psychology, I've helped uh, in the last six months or so share a couple of large scale data sets um, of MRI data. Um, and it's kind of come to my attention that there are things that librarians and you know, scholarly communication specialists think a lot about that researchers might not necessarily um, be aware of or paying attention to when they're designing their studies and then when they're getting ready to share their data. Um, so you end up with you know, some things that it's worth highlighting in advance. So certainly licensing and copyright is one of them. Biggest thing we've run into with this is actually stimulus sets, which are really important for visual neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience in general, um, as well as uh, machine learning, computer vision fields. Um, and so having the rights, not just to use these images, which you can usually use under fair use for scientific purposes, but the rights to redistribute them, um, which is actually kind of tricky under copyright law. Um, so we've had to work around that um, being the biggest issue for licensing. I think, yeah, there's a few different issues that fall into this. So copyright and licensing is one. Uh, discoverability, like where to put things in a repository to share them. If I can say that GitHub is not an archival repository, I'll say that right now uh, in this platform. Um, so GitHub is great for collaboration, for versioning, for keeping track of projects. It's definitely a tool to, to learn and use, despite sometimes the steep learning curve for early adopters, but uh, a great tool. But however, it's not an, a great place to archive things. I was going to say, can you explain a little bit more for listeners just like what you mean by archiving and why that's important? Yeah, sure. Um, so in this sense, I'm talking about making something publicly available so that someone else can discover it and use it. Um, there's also a level of preservation there as well um, that an, archive, an archivist uh, would attend to. Most trusted repositories are going to have an archival plan. It may not be to keep the data forever and ever, but for a minimum of 10 years, often longer, assuming it's being downloaded or used. You know, GitHub has some backup plans in place there, but it's not thought of as a trusted repository. The other thing is making the data, what we would call it the acronym in this world would be FAIR, which is findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. Um, and that relies on a few different things. Uh, one of them is the metadata that you're putting into the record. So in a, in a repository like Figshare, you're going to fill out standard, it's called Dublin Core metadata. It's the authors, it's the title, it's some keywords, it's a description, it includes a machine-readable license, and you want that metadata to be um, as machine-readable and standardized as possible. Um, that helps with indexing the data sets so that it can be found by Google and Google Dataset Search, um, as well as someone searching the repository through the search that's there. The interoperability, reusability, means making sure that someone has the rights 
to reuse it, um, as well as the proper documentation to make it reusable. And that's where the differentiation comes in between open, but no one can find it without the link. And also you download it and you can't make sense of it. So it's actually pretty useless and open and actually useful um, such that someone can find it and you know, aggregate data sets or rerun an analysis uh, or anything like that. So John, what do you want to jump in about here? So, so I work in a slightly different setting than Anna does. And so most of the data that I hear about is actually not neuroimaging data these days. Um, it's like data from the electronic health record. So there's like a completely different set of problems and concerns. <laughs> um, and so I've, I've become very pragmatic about like licensing and copyright, but also like the big concern on in this world that I work in now is HIPAA, right? Um, like these legal frameworks that apply to data. And so, you know, when I talk to to researchers about putting a license on the data, their their own data sets, the first question I ask them is like, okay, what do you want to do? Do you want to make this publicly available or not? But also like, what can you legally do with this data? So like if you have data that it only makes sense to make available if it has participants, like names and social security numbers in it, then we can't have a conversation about putting a CC0 license on it. That does, does not make sense. You know, at the same time, there's a lot of data that we can just make publicly available through our repository or, or through some other means. And then that's when I have the conversation like Anna was talking about, about like it's not enough to just make something available, like put something in a box that other people can go find it. You have to make sure that once they have it, they can actually use it. <laughs> so, so making sure the documentation is in order, making sure the metadata makes sense, but also just like making sure the file format is something that maybe in a year or five years or ten years something somebody will actually be able to use. You know, I I know of lots and lots of data that is stored on DVDs or. CDs or punch cards. Like my old advisor had, had her had punch cards in a closet and like that data is available, I guess, technically, but it's not really usable. Even the data that I collected when I was a graduate student, I think it's all backed up on DVDs, but my, my, my laptop now doesn't have a disk drive. So <laughs> I can't actually get it. But yeah. So, so it's a very involved and nuanced conversation. You know, I, I teach a data management class a couple times a year and I taught it earlier this this week, and I said at the beginning, like, this class might be a little bit unsatisfying because the needs and demands of your particular data are going to be so specific that we would have to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation to talk about what they are. And, and for, like, neuroimaging data, those needs are evolving. You know, it wasn't until relatively recently that there was really an easy way to make that data available. You know, open neuro is not that old, but there's also like examples of, you know, that kind of data has special de-identification problems. Like you have to mask the face of, of that data so that it is, you know, anonymized. Yeah. So, also the issue of consent. Of right, exactly. Into consent. That's another reason why you'll yeah. have to think about data sharing at the beginning of a project. Right. And, and, and you know, that is also very institutional based. Yeah. So, so where I am, my IRB, because I'm, I think this is partially because I work in a medical school, like they're, they're pretty happy for me to share data. That's just like, you know, uh, survey results about data management because I'm not like doing a clinical trial or something. They, 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 they assume that's pretty innocuous. Uh, they assume correctly. 
but different IRBs have different perspectives on this. And right, it's a, it's a matter of, of educating researchers that if they're going to, if they want to share data at the end of a project, they really need to consider that at the very beginning and write that into all their documentation and consider what that actually means about the questions that they can ask and the data that they can collect and what they can actually do with it. Really great suggestions here. I just want to thank you both again for taking the time to speak with me today. 